I know we cut you off a little bit short on the meet and greet. Everybody's still wanting to gather around. But unless you want to be a gypsy church this morning, I say let's, uh, let's go ahead and get into, get into our study. And so if you have your Bible with you this morning, I invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 2. We'll be there um, another week, another week next week. But um, as you're doing that, man, I, I, I just want you to know how excited I am about that report that you just heard and, and the door that God has opened there. And so, you know, we obviously have talked about this and raised a bunch of money for it, and, and we praise the Lord for that. But um, it's not just talk, it's real. And you should be excited about it as well because we are all a part of this. And just because Jeff was there, or Jeff and I will be there, or others, we are all a part of it. We need your prayers. You're a part of investing in those pastors in Hungary. And so, um, so it's, it, it's a great thing. Be excited about that. Um, I also, too, just returned um, late this week from Discipleship Conference. So I was at the Discipleship Conference in Cartersville, Georgia. Uh, at Oakland Heights Baptist Church down there outside of Atlanta, and we had a great time there. And so um, you, we, were, we were represented well, and it was a, one of the Living Faith Fellowship conferences, and, and it was a good one. It was um, a lot of great things that, that talked about a lot of good fellowship. So um, folks, say hi from, from the Atlanta area. Uh, I want to thank Craig also for, for while I was out of town, while I was down in Georgia last week for stepping in. Um, so he did a great job. But we're going to continue on. In Acts chapter 2, and we've seen some major happenings already. This is a very important chapter uh, in the book of Acts, a very deep doctrinal chapter. We'll talk more about that today. And as I told you two weeks ago, the last time I was up here, this chapter is a bridge to a, to a major dispensational shift that is occurring in history. A new age is being birthed, and, and the people involved with it still didn't even understand all that. They didn't really know what was happening. And, and I've, I told you this last time as well. We, we know. We have the privilege of knowing because we have hindsight and even more importantly, we have a completed Bible. And so we can look back and we can see what God was doing. But at the beginning of this chapter, we saw the Holy Spirit's arrival as had been promised by Jesus and prophesied in the Old Testament. And, and when I say the Holy Spirit's arrival, I mean in, in, a, in a more permanent nature on the earth. The, I think I put this in your uh, bulletin, but the Holy Spirit wasn't new to the scene. The Holy Spirit is God and therefore by definition always existed. And we know the Spirit of God was active in the creation account. Genesis 1.1, the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form of void. And darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. So he was active in creation, he's active and present throughout the Old Testament, but, but until we get to Acts chapter 2 and into the, into the New Testament, the Holy Spirit could and would come and go, he'd make his presence known, he would act, and he would go away, and he would come upon some people, and he would leave some people. And so there was no permanent indwelling or sealing like we get today. Praise the Lord for the dispensation of grace. And Acts chapter 2 is where this dispensational transition began. And the Spirit came into those 120 in the upper room, and it was the baptism of the Holy Ghost that we talked about in length a couple weeks ago. And then the 12 apostles, including the newly minted Matthias, they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they began speaking in tongues or the languages of those in attendance, upwards of 15 different languages again by my count. And 
the people were amazed and confused and, and some just mocked the apostles and accused them of being drunk. And, and then Peter stood up and told him to shut it. I mean, he didn't really actually do that. But, but he did stand up, as we learned last week, and preach a very bold and directed sermon. And he told those Jews listening that it wasn't the apostles that had messed up. They, they were not, in fact, drunk. But instead, it was all of them that had messed up by crucifying Jesus. And he, had, he indicted them for what they had done to their Messiah. He took them back to the book of Joel and showed them where it was prophesied. And, and he cut them in pieces. And that was the focus of last Sunday's study, but it's a quick, quick reminder. Listen to what Peter said in verses 22 and 23. You men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. And Peter ends that sermon in no uncertain terms. In verse 36, it says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye crucified, both Lord and Christ. And, you know, talk about a mic drop. You know, walk off the stage. But the very next verse, verse 37, is where we pick up the narrative this morning. And we pick up the narrative as we pick up those Jews listening off the floor because that's pretty much where Peter left them. But what we're going to find out this morning is that even with as dire as the situation seemed, it turns out that the nation of Israel had a renewed opportunity to make things right. And that's where we get our title for today's sermon, A Renewed Opportunity. Because that is exactly what they had. Listen. God must really be long-suffering, like the Bible says. I mean, just think about it. They just crucified his son, and he's still giving him another shot. He's not giving up on him. And just think about the love and the compassion of Jesus, who while on the cross, in the midst of unimaginable and horrible torture and suffering, prays to his father in Luke 23, 34, then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they parted his raiment and cast lots. And since God is long-suffering, and because of his love for his son, God answered that prayer. And he gives Israel another chance. And in our text this morning, Peter lays out what this new chance, what this renewed opportunity looks like, what it requires of them. And so let's look at it together and, and see what the Lord will teach us this morning. We, we have a lot, of, a lot of stuff to get into and get through today, through only four verses. We're only going to look at verses 37 through 40. So pick it up in verse 37. Now when they heard this, when they heard all that Peter said, when they heard Peter's sermon, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? And then Peter said unto them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words he did testify and exhort, saying, Save yourself from this untoward generation. 
All right, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for what we heard this morning already, how we've been able to worship you in song, the report we heard on what you're doing with those pastors in Hungary, and, and Lord, even what you did last week at Discipleship Conference. Lord, it's an exciting time, and, and you are worthy to, to serve, and you are worthy to worship. So I pray that you be with us in this service. I pray that you teach us exactly what we need to hear today. I pray that everything is, that is said is true to your word and that you're glorified through all of it. We love you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so after Peter's strong sermon, the, the Jews that were gathered and those that heard it, they're trying to figure out, okay, well, well what do we do now? I mean, you just told us how we weren't, we, we weren't supposed to kill him, that he was the king, he was the Messiah, but we did. So what do we do now? And so Peter tells them, he lays it out, and as I've already mentioned, this provides for us some insight into the renewed opportunity for Israel. And it starts with this. This is our first point, the response to Peter's sermon. Look back at verse 37 one more time. Now, when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Now, there are two aspects to this response to Peter's sermon that we need to look at, beginning with their conviction. All right, we need to look at their conviction. And it's an interesting terminology. There's interesting terminology that the King James Bible uses here. It says they were pricked in their heart. All right, that word pricked means to puncture or to pierce through. Now listen, this is one of the ways that we know that Peter's sermon was of the Lord. Because this is what the word of God does when you just let it do the work. Right, Craig talked about that last week. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing or pricking, even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. This is how God's word works every time. The Holy Spirit works God's word into someone's life. And, they are conf when they're conf and they're confronted in that moment. They're confronted with their wrong. They're confronted with their sin. This is part of the work of the Holy Spirit. This is exactly what he was doing here. Just as Jesus said he would, by the way, we've looked at John 16, 7 over and over again in this study. And in case you don't remember, that is a verse where Jesus says, listen, guys, it's expedient for you that I go away. Because if I don't, the comforter won't come. But if I do go away, I'll send him, the comforter, the Holy Spirit, I'll send him to you. Okay, so we've, we've looked at that over and over, but, but what did he say that the comforter would do when he sent him? Look, pick it up in John 16, verse 8. And when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they believe not on me. And the listeners of Peter's sermon were feeling that reproof. They realized their sin, how they didn't believe on Jesus. And they crucified him because of that unbelief. And they were being confronted with it, and it pricked their hearts. And this is key because, listen, when the Holy Spirit confronts people through the preaching of God's word, those people usually go one of two ways. They usually go one of two ways. They respond and get saved or get right, or they'll go the opposite way and become antagonistic against God and the people of God. 
And you see this, this play out through the book of Acts. Here in Acts chapter 2, they were pricked in their hearts and ultimately 3,000 repent and join the Jerusalem church. We're going to see that next week in verse 41. But when Peter and the other apostles were preaching in Acts 5, look at the reaction. Acts 5.33 says, and when they heard that, when they heard the preaching, they were cut to the heart and took counsel to slay them. A little different reaction than the group in Acts chapter 2. It's the same in Acts chapter 7 with Stephen's preaching. Look at verse 54. And when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. And they gnashed on him with their teeth. And they ended up killing Stephen. You see, when the word of God does the work of Hebrews 4.12 in conjunction with the Holy Spirit, strong responses occur. And listen, the... The, the same is true today as well. Because preaching, the preaching of God's word is the primary method God uses to bring about conviction in people. Because without the word of God and the Holy Spirit of God, there will never be conviction. Both elements are required. There will never be repentance. Both elements are required. That is how God works. And he works through biblical preaching. And as the word of God is proclaimed, then the Holy Spirit is active in the lives of the listeners, of the hearers. And he works the conviction, and then we're, you know, people choose how to respond. And many times they'll go in those opposite extremes. And of, and of course, conviction can happen alone if you're reading God's word or, or, or whatever. But that's, that's how he works conviction and, 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 and how we work out repentance through God's word and through the Holy Spirit of God. Those are two necessary ingredients. But listen, you and I also have a role. Because we get to decide what we're going to do with that pricking. And it all depends on your heart. Will you soften it or will you harden it? Which way will you go? And God warns against hardening our heart many, many times in the Bible. This is a particular problem for Israel. For example, Psalm 95.8 says, Harden not your heart as in the provocation and as in the day of temptation in the wilderness. And that's an that's a admonition for us as well, to not harden our heart. And you have to see this, because this was the exact issue in those examples we looked at in the book of Acts. The wording in our Bible is amazing. God doesn't miss a thing. Because did you notice the difference in the wording in Acts 2 versus the wording in Acts 5 and Acts 7? Well, let's look at it again. Let's go back to Acts 2.37. Can we go back to Acts 2.37? It says, now when they heard this, they were pricked where? In. They were pricked in their hearts. All right, that means is the word of God penetrated their heart because their heart was soft. But go back to Acts 5.33. When they heard that, it says they were cut to the heart. Not in. To the heart. Look at 7.54. Acts 7.54. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. And that's because they had hardened their heart. So they wouldn't allow the word of God to get in. It only got to. 
And according to Hebrews 4.12, it will go as deep as you allow it. But it's your choice. You absolutely have a free will, and you get to choose what you are going to do with God's word. And listen, this is so important for all of us. You need to hear this now. There is a lesson here for us. And the lesson is there is great danger attached to being insensitive to the preaching of God's word and the prodding of God's spirit. There's great danger attached to that. If you're not sensitive to the preaching of God's word and the prodding of God's spirit, you are going to end up in a bad, bad place. And, it, and, you, and maybe you don't end up in, in the antagonistic side of things. You know, that maybe isn't true for a lot of God's people. But you know what God's people do? They ignore it. And they push it down. And they don't let it get in their heart. They, they let it get to, but they don't let it get in. And they harden their heart. And that will lead to trouble because you will grieve the Spirit of God. If, you, if you're a Christian, you will grieve the Spirit of God. And you will eventually quench the Spirit of God. And, and the quenching is, is just like it sounds. The Holy Spirit is still there. You are eternally secure. But it's like the fire has gone out. You've rendered him useless in your life. And that is the truth, and it's set out of love, so I hope you take it that way. We all need to respond to the conviction that God gives us. That is a good thing. We view conviction as bad so many times. No, that is the proof that God still cares for you and loves you enough to point out where you're wrong. Don't be insensitive to that. Respond, be obedient to God. Respond the way that the 3,000 Jews did in Acts 2, allowing it to penetrate your heart and being obedient to what God is calling you to. So we see their conviction, but then next we also need to look at their question. Because their conviction led them to ask Peter a question. What do we, what do, we do now? After everything you just told us, how do we make it right? Look at verse 37 again, and now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Now listen, before, before we dive into all this, there's, there's something we need to understand. It's, it's the first rule of Bible study. We need to understand context. And we learned the context last week. Peter's message was a national message to Israel. The they at the beginning of verse 37, and the we at the end of verse 37 is referring to the nation, not only the individuals hearing the message. So they needed to know what to do as a nation since they just killed their Messiah 50 days earlier. And that's consistent throughout this section of Scripture. Peter referred to the nation of Israel in one form or another over and over again in his sermon. You heard that last week, but, but let me summarize it with this. The key phrase in all of it, and what sets the immediate context for everything we're looking at today is verse 36. And we're not going to take the time. You can look at it yourself. But the, there's a key phrase in there that, that addresses, and that phrase is the house of Israel. The house of Israel. That is a phrase found 152 times in your Bible. All but six of those are found in the Old Testament and the six that are found in the New Testament are all either in Matthew, Acts, or Hebrews. All right, so it's, it's the house of Israel. And listen, what the house of Israel points us to every single time is the nation as a whole. He didn't say the men of Israel. 
He didn't say the children of Israel. That's a more individual message. He said the house of Israel. That gives us the context as we're, we're talking national message, national level here. And listen, there was a different message to the nation of Israel at that time than the message to us today. And like I've already told you, a new age was being birthed in this chapter with the body of Christ, but, but there's a transition over time. So we don't really see anything specifically related to the dispensation of grace until Acts chapter 10 or so. I mean, you can make an argument for Acts chapter 8, but certainly in that, after, no doubt, after Acts chapter 7, you, you, we begin to see some transitions, but nothing before then. Plus, we know from this passage and the answer to the question in, in Acts 2.37 that God is giving Israel this renewed opportunity. It's to the house of Israel. It's very clear. The gospel of grace is found nowhere in this chapter. Certainly not in verse 38 that we'll look at next. A different gospel is being preached. Paul lays out some of the difference in Galatians chapter 2. He's discussing a time where he and Barnabas and Titus, they come back to Jerusalem. And look what he says in verse 7. But contrary rise, when they saw that the gospel of the uncircumcision was committed unto me, as the gospel of the circumcision was unto Peter, for he that wrought effectually in Peter to the apostleship, excuse me, apostleship of the circumcision, the same was mighty in me toward the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, that's Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given unto me, that gave to me and Barnabas the right hands of fellowship, that we should go into the heathen, and they unto the circumcision. You see, there are very clearly two gospels being presented here. So the gospel of the circumcision was for the Jews, right? That should make sense by the title. I'm not, I'm not going to explain that further. And the gospel of the uncircumc uncircumcision was for the Gentiles. Paul says that explicitly. Now that one is for us. So listen, when the question, if you have a question and the question is related to salvation, you need to ask the correct apostle. You need to ask the correct apostle. You do not want to ask Peter how you should get saved today. So in a bit of foreshadowing, that means Acts 2.38 that we will talk about next has nothing to do with our salvation. But let me say, the question that those Jews asked in Acts 2.37 was a great one to ask, and it still is today. You just have to know which, which answer applies to you. And I say that because this same question was basically asked two other times in the book of Acts. And the answer is different every single time. The first time is here in Acts 2.37, and Peter gives the answer. The second time is with Saul, or Paul, who, who was a very special character, and the Lord has a special answer for him. Acts 9, this is his encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. And he, Saul, said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? See, it's, it, this is basically the same question. And the Lord said unto him, Arise, and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. And we don't have time. We'll, we'll go through all, the, all that meant for Paul in Acts chapter 9. But listen, it's a different answer. The, the third time was asked by the Philippian jailer in Acts 16, verses 29 through 31. 
And he called for a light and sprang in and came down trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And thy house, who was also hearing the word of God. We know that from verse 32. And by Acts 16, we've seen the shift. Paul's now the main character, and the answer to the question is, believe on Jesus Christ. It's a much different answer than the one that Peter gives. But the Jews here in Acts 2.37 were doing the right thing. They were asking the right question, and they were asking the right guy. And that guy, Peter, had the right answer for them. And the answer in verses 38 and 39 gives us our next point, and that is the revealing of the solution. Paul reveals the solution. What, he gives them the answer to the question. Look at what he said. So they ask him, what, what do we need to do now? And then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. Okay, now this is, this, I mean, this is great. We've got we to spend some time here. Might turn into Gypsy Church after all. I'm just, I'm just kidding. But I believe Acts 2:38 to be one of, if not the most misused and misinterpreted verses in Scripture. This is one of the primary proof texts for those that would teach the doctrine of baptismal regeneration, or that doctrine that just says baptism is essential for and part of salvation. It is, it is a requirement of salvation to be baptized. And if you, if you don't know how to rightly divide Scripture, I can see how you would come to that conclusion because that is exactly what Acts 2.38 says. So you have a large group of people that, that do not know how to rightly divide the Word of God, and so they end up in a wrong doctrinal place with respect to baptism's role for the believer in Jesus Christ. And so let me be very clear here. Nowhere, nowhere in the gospel of grace, nowhere in the Pauline epistles do you see baptism as a part of salvation, as essential for Nowhere. It is, Paul is very consistent, faith in Jesus Christ alone. We are saved God's grace by, we put our faith in Jesus and we're saved by God's grace. That's it. That's it. So, the, okay, so there's this group and they, they end up in a wrong spot on, on doctrine but then there's a different group, and, and this group's more like us. Maybe not completely like us, but, but at least would be like us in that they don't believe that baptism is essential for salvation. And so they understand the Pauline epistles, and they understand Paul's message in the gospel of grace. So they would have the same soteriological doctrine that we have, the, the same doctrine of salvation that we have. But they too can't rightly divide, so they just don't know what to do with this verse. I don't have any clue on what to do with this verse. And so what they do is they just explain it away. And they explain it away primarily in one of two ways. So, so first they'll just kind of brush it off and they'll say, well, yeah, of course, baptism isn't a requirement for salvation. You don't get the Holy Ghost from being baptized, but you still need to be baptized to obey God and to be filled with the Spirit. And if you're disobedient to God, then you're going to quench the Spirit in your life and he becomes of no effect, right? So don't get caught up in the order of things in Acts 2.38, you just need to see the big picture. And that's all fine, except that's not what Acts 2.38 says. 
and you don't get to make it up. Gotta be true to the Bible. So that happens, but then others explain it away by saying your Bible's wrong. So for example, let me give you a quote from Warren Wiersbe in his commentary on the book of Acts. And Warren Wiersbe, uh, he's no longer alive. He died uh, maybe three or four years ago, 2019-ish. Very popular amongst evangelicals. Longtime Baptist pastor, pastored Moody Church, part of Moody Bible Institute for many, many years. Came out of the Cincinnati area. Um, You know, large churches. Wrote the B-series wrote commentaries. Um, I, I have his full commentary set in my office. Um, he, commentary on every book of the Bible. Very, very popular. Um, and, and he's, for the most part, he's, he's not bad on, on most of his doctrine. He doesn't understand everything, at least the way we understand it, but, but, he's, but he certainly would view salvation in the exact same way that we would. But listen, even guys like Wearsby didn't know what to do with this verse. So I'm just quoting, you, this is, you can read his commentary, I'm just quoting from his commentary. This is what he says. He said, it is unfortunate that the translation of Acts 2.38 and the King James Version suggests that people must be baptized in order to be saved, because this is not what the Bible teaches. The Greek word, ice, which is translated for in the phrase for the remission of sins can mean on the account of or on the basis of. In Matthew 3.11, John the Baptist baptized on the basis that people had repented. Acts 2.38 should not be used to teach salvation by baptism. So that's, again, that's just a direct quote from his commentary. And listen, with all due respect to Warren Wiersbe, I'm sure he was a great Christian. Every bit of that is wrong. Even the last sentence where he says Acts 2.38 should not be used to teach salvation by baptism. Actually, it absolutely should be used to teach that, just not for us. It was for Israel at that time. So let me explain this to you. Let me explain what Peter is saying. And it starts by by going back, we need to start by going back to Mark chapter 1. And verse 4, and I like this because the book of Mark begins with the ministry of John the Baptist, right out the chute. And Mark 1.4 says, John, speaking of John the Baptist, John did baptize in the wilderness and preached the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. This is the exact same thing. Peter's message in Acts 2.38 is the identical or mostly identical, we'll talk about some caveats, but is the same message of John the Baptist when he came to prepare Israel for the coming of their Messiah. I told you last time there are multiple baptisms in the Bible. There's seven of them, to be in fact, that we, we note. This is one of them, the baptism of John the Baptist, or it's known as the baptism of repentance. And what this was, was John was calling the nation of Israel to repent for their Old Testament rejection of God so they would be in a position to accept Jesus as their king. Like he was making a way. He came in before Jesus, declaring Jesus as their king. So you you have to get this. In Acts 2, Peter is preaching John's message. John tried to get them ready, but they wouldn't listen. And Jesus came and Israel crucified him. And now they're asking, okay, we crucified him. What do we do now? How do we make it right? And Peter said, you need to do the same thing that John told you to do. You need to repent and be baptized. It's the same message, and that is how we know it is a renewed opportunity. 
There's still a chance for the nation of Israel who, who failed under John's preaching to be a part of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. God's giving them another chance. And this is what the early part of the book of Acts is all about. And this is why Peter's message matched John's message. He's calling out a believing remnant in Israel to get things right. Look at the beginning of Matthew chapter 3, starting in verse 1. In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness, saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And we've talked about this a little bit, but the kingdom of heaven, in distinction from the kingdom of God, is heaven's reign established on earth with Jesus as king. And it was at hand in Matthew chapter 3 because the king was there. And at hand, it just means near and available. But they had to repent. And of course, not all of them would. There's always been a division in Israel with those who believed and obeyed and those who didn't. But the problem is those who are making the decisions for the nation, they did not like this message. And down to verse 7 of Matthew chapter 3, John says, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now, wrath to come, it points prophetically to the second coming, but John knew who they were from the first time he saw them. They were snakes. They were vipers. And sure enough, they colluded. They got John thrown in prison, and but that was part of God's plan anyway because John had to decrease and so that Jesus could increase. And so then Jesus begins preaching. And what message did he preach? We see it in Matthew 4, 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus preached the exact same message. Look down at verse 23. Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. Listen, the gospel of the kingdom is not the gospel of grace by which we are saved. It is a different good news for a different group. It was good news. It was very good news for Israel that the kingdom was at hand, but they killed the king. And as I've said over and over in our passage in Acts 2, God is now giving them another chance. He's just so long-suffering. And isn't that true? Don't you know that to be true in your life? how long-suffering God is, man, we serve a great God. He's not willing that any should perish, and that was true of Israel then, that is true of us today. But the message for Israel regarding how not to perish and the message for us, those are different. So just consider, for example, Paul. Just, just a, a very brief few verses of what, of what Paul said to the Corinthians. Let's look, go down. In first, look at what he said in 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved is the power of God. Then down to verse 23. But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block and unto the Greeks foolishness. Then chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's what Paul was about. When Paul preached, he preached the cross. He preached Jesus Christ and him crucified. And we could go on and on with verses about that. But did Peter, here in Acts chapter 2, preach the cross? 
Did he tell the Jews that they needed to believe in the death, burial, and resurrection? No. He said, repent of your rejection of Christ and be baptized. Peter was saying, if you turn back to God, God will turn back to you. It's not our message, not at all. Ours is the cross, man. That is our message. Here, listen, God came running to us. But at this point in history, Israel had to go running back to him. And listen, it's not that the cross wasn't important for them. It was. But for them, it pointed to their rejection. For us, it points to our salvation. And, and they'll figure out all that the cross meant later. But they didn't even understand it all at this point. And they didn't need to. So the message here in Acts 2 is the same as the beginning of the gospel, specific to the Jews, when receiving Jesus as their king was still an option to set up his kingdom on this earth. Now God's giving them a renewed opportunity through the same message. But there is a new aspect to this message. Actually, there are a few new aspects. It's now in the name of Jesus. The remission of sins is a bit different, but you have to take our LFBI class if you've got to get into all that, or we will turn into a gypsy church. But the one I want you to notice is that now they have the opportunity to receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, according to the end of verse 38 and the beginning of verse 39. And we, again, we've talked about this many times. This is the fulfillment of the promise of God. That is the promise that he says in verse 39. So we already know that Jesus had to leave for the Holy Spirit to be sent. And this promise was always part of God's plan. You see it throughout the Old Testament. So the Holy Spirit isn't something that God only reserved for us Gentiles, even in in an indwelling aspect. So look at Acts 2.39 again. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. So the promise is the Holy Spirit and the you are the Jews. And by the way, the children, also Jews, And those afar off, also Jews. Many, even I would say most people will will say, okay, when he says those afar off, he's talking about Gentiles. And they'll use that to, to help make this fit into the church age more fully. But no, those afar off are the Jews who were far away from the land grant that had originally been given to Abraham. Those that were scattered And we know that. The Bible defines itself. So, for example, Jeremiah 46, 27. But fear not thou, O my servant Jacob, and be not dismayed, O Israel. For behold, I will save thee from afar off, and thy seed from the land of their captivity. And Jacob shall return and be in rest and at ease, and none shall make him afraid. Daniel 9, 7 tells us this very clearly. O Lord, righteousness belongeth unto thee, but unto us confusion of faces, as at this day to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, And to all Israel that are near and that are afar off. You hear that? All of Israel that are near and all of Israel that are afar off. Through all the countries, whither thou hast driven them because of their trespass, they be trespassed against thee. So we're still talking all Jews here, even with respect to the giving of the Holy Spirit. And that's because this was always part of God's intention. It was part of the new covenant that God promised in Jeremiah 31, and it's described this way in Ezekiel 36, verses 26 and 27. A new heart also will I give unto you, and a new spirit will I put within you. Not just upon you, but within you. 
And I will take away the stony heart of your flesh and will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you shall keep my judgments and do them. And listen, this new covenant is to be part of the kingdom reign. It is a part of the kingdom reign. In, in prophetic picture, at the end of the tri- tribulation, end of the millennium, pay attention to what Isaiah 44 verses 1 through 3 says. Yet now hear, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus saith the Lord that hath made thee, and formed thee from thy womb, which shall help thee. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and thou Jeserin, that that's interesting that we don't have time to get into, but whom I have chosen. For listen, listen to verse 3. For I will pour out water upon him that is thirsty, and floods upon the dry ground, and I will pour my spirit upon thy seed, and my blessing upon thine offspring. Okay, Isaiah 44.3 is a great cross-reference to Acts 2.38 and 39. Because in, in picture, you see John's baptism, for I will pour out water upon him that's thirsty. You see the spirit coming, uh, I'll pour out my spirit upon thy seed. And you see the children in Acts 39, and my blessing upon thine offspring. And you see it all there, and it's, it is there in picture about what God's promise to the new covenant for Israel. And then listen to Ezekiel 38, verses 28 and 29. Then shall they know that I am the Lord their God, which caused them to be led into captivity among the heathen. But I've gathered them into their own land, and I've left none of them any more there. Neither will I hide my face any more from them, for I have poured out my spirit upon the house of Israel, saith the Lord God. You see, it's all right there. And I know this is a little difficult to get, and, and, and we'll go into this deeper in, you know, in, in, in other classes than we can on a Sunday morning. But listen, this was, and still is, the kingdom plan. And now we get part of that new covenant as subjects of the kingdom of God. Because we get the Holy Spirit's indwelling. And I think in part that is to make Israel jealous. You see, we are part of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is in us. But the kingdom of God isn't only us. Both kingdoms are in the king. Both kingdoms will be present in the millennium. Both kingdoms were at hand with Jesus. So the Holy Spirit was part of this new kingdom offer as it came after Jesus' death. So the solution was revealed. And listen, I get it. That's a lot. For, for some of you, man, that might be like, whoa, I don't. And I'm not sure. I'm not sure what what all that was. It's okay. Just know that the solution for Israel is different than the solution for us. But the solution was revealed. Repent. Turn back to God. Chase after him by being baptized and you'll get the Holy Spirit. There's one more piece to this renewed opportunity that we need to discuss. And that's the requirement to separate. Look at verse 40. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, save yourself from this untoward generation. So Peter said more than the scripture reveals to us, but we have everything God wanted us to have. And he sums up everything else Peter said in six words. Save yourself from this untoward generation. And untoward means warped, crooked, or perverse. It even has a, is attributed to being a fraud. And what was happening here is that Peter was telling the listeners that even though the Jewish leaders were claiming to follow God, claiming their rights as the seed of Abraham and how they were a special people in the, in the world, when their Messiah came, they crucified him. They didn't want a new king because they liked their positions too much. So here again, there is a division within the nation of Israel. 
We talked about this a little bit earlier. God is separating the wheat from the chaff, Matthew chapter 3. And he's separating out a believing remnant. So Peter tells everyone listening to him to save themselves by separating themselves. Don't go along with the mob like you did when the mob yelled, crucify him and release Barabbas. You have another chance now. Get it right. And listen, prophetically, that's the purpose of the tribulation. Peter couldn't see that far, but we can now. That is the time of judgment for Israel, but a believing remnant will be separated, and they will be saved by God himself at the second coming. And it was also the message of Jesus at his first coming and, and John the Baptist. We already read Matthew 3, 7, talking about the wrath to come for those vipers. But look at what Jesus says in Matthew 12, verses 32 through 34. Whosoever speaketh a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whosoever speaketh against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him. Neither in this world, neither in the world to come. Either make the tree good and his fruit good, or else make the tree corrupt and his fruit corrupt. For the tree is known by his fruit. O generation of vipers, how can ye being evil speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. And you can't miss this. And we'll, we'll wrap up after this. I'll, I'll just kind of summarize the rest. But... But the context of this is the unpardonable sin. And there's a lot. We talk about that in LFBI too, and these, these, these type of issues. But Jesus is telling the Jews, listen, whatever you say and do against me, you know, that can be forgiven. And that played out in history because they killed him and they cursed him. And yet Jesus said on the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And God answered that prayer. But here we are in Acts chapter 2 with another chance. But, but what is the unpardonable sin? It's speaking against and rejecting the Holy Ghost, right? According to this verse in, in Matthew chapter 12. Well, that's the book of Acts. The Holy Spirit was the one speaking through Peter in Acts 2. What we'll see in, in the coming weeks is they ultimately reject Peter's message. It officially occurs in Acts 7 with the stoning of Stephen. But listen, that was a rejection of the Holy Ghost. And at that point, God moves on. I told you in the introduction of this book that Israel rejected God the Father in the Old Testament, God the Son in the Gospels, and God the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. And this was, there was, and will be again in the tribulation only one way to save themselves to separate themselves from the untoward generation and be part of that believing remnant by being obedient unto, unto the message. And, and we won't take the time because we're almost out of time, but if you look at Max, uh, Matthew 16, 4 and Matthew 17, 17 and Matthew 23, verses 33 through 36, those all say the same thing, to remove yourself. That there's a generation of vipers and judgment was coming. And Peter was giving them a warning, a warning to separate. And individuals had the ability to be saved from the national judgment, but it would cost them. And it will cost them dearly in the tribulation. That believing remnant will go through hell on earth. But if they'll just obey, God will come through at the end. And he will save them. And it will be worth it. And listen, I would just say, for us today, I, I don't know that it's much different. 
Because there's a judgment coming for us too. It's a different judgment. But as a church and as individual believers, I think that we too need to separate ourselves from the faithless generation that makes up the church age. And we need to be true to God and his word no matter the cost. And I promise you, if we do that, it'll cost us something. But it will be worth it. Because he is worth it. And so that's, what, that's my prayer and desire of this book study, to allow it to drive us to be more passionately committed to the mission. The last thing I want to do is just play church. I don't want to just hold services. I want us all to be committed and devoted to something so much bigger than us. And so much bigger than whatever limited excitement our worldly lives brings. That is woefully short of what God would have us to be doing. And shame on us if our true heart's desire is tied to the things of this world. And he, he gave all for us. Let's give all for him now, for the mission. Let's be about it until he comes to get us. Let's have every head bowed and every eye closed.